All right, well, good morning again. I'm opening my Bible right now to Acts chapter 8. I want to invite you to do the same thing. If, you have, if you're using a Bible app on your phone or a device of any kind or you have a hard copy of the Bible, whatever you're using, I think you'll get the most out of this today is if you open up and turn to Acts chapter 8. So we've been in the sermon series going through the book of Acts. Uh, we've been in it for a few months now, and I told you we're going to conclude it around Thanksgiving time, and I'll pick up the study in a Bible class and continue it. So I hope that on. Can you all hear me okay? Okay. Uh, I hope that in your own personal time you, you spent time reading through Acts and, and just coming before God, reading through the text, and asking God uh, to guide you as I do each week as I spend a lot of time in the text. And so Acts chapter 8 has been one of my favorite chapters that I've read so far, and I'm looking forward to diving in with you this morning. But I want to start with a prayer. So if you would, let's pray. Dear God, we come before you right now with gratefulness that we're here. Thank you, Father, for the communion we're able to take, for the songs we're able to sing, the conversations we're able to have. And as we spend some time right now studying your word, sharing stories, thoughts, observations, application. Lord, I pray that you would give me the gift of preaching and that you will speak through me and speak a word into this church. And I just pray, Father, that most importantly, that your word will speak and that for whoever's in this room right now that really needs to hear this, Father, that you will open us up and give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And we thank you for giving us this avenue of prayer. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I titled this sermon, Unexpected Interactions in Unusual Places. Uh, to give you an example of this, about four years ago, four and a half years ago, it was May of 2015, I took a trip with a friend of mine, a, a really quick trip to New York City. I've actually told this story before, not this exact story, but the fact that we went to New York and we didn't get a hotel room. We thought that would be a good idea to just stay up all night and then fly back the next day, which was an awful idea. But part of the way through the first day we were there, like the first 12 hours we were there, uh, we decided to go up the Empire State Building, which is what all tourists do, and we paid a little extra to go up even higher, to go up to the highest spot in the Empire State Building. And they told us that's an extra elevator ride, which is, I guess, why they charged us more. And they said the elevator's small, and it can only hold about eight people. So you have to wait in line and and just kind of observe the line and, and go when it's your chance. So we were walking around this observation deck, and we noticed the line of the elevator was small, so we, we went over, and we were ready to get on the, our, the elevator and go up to the highest point, and uh, we hopped in the elevator, and as soon as I did, only about eight people can fit in there, and as soon as I hopped on the elevator, I made eye contact with a girl from Pittsburgh, Texas. Uh, I had directed a camp for many years. She grew up going to the Dangerfield Church of Christ, and so she had been a part of this camp for all these years, and I looked at her, and she looked at me, and she was like, Jody? And I said, Shelby? And we had a conversation on an elevator in New York City that could only fit eight people. What are the odds of that? That's strange, right? Like, it took a little bit to figure out, did I just run into somebody I know from East Texas in New York on a small elevator? That is what I would consider an unexpected interaction in an unusual place. It seems to happen to me more often. I don't know if it's because I'm getting older and I've met more people, or maybe I'm becoming more aware of it. I knew two kids that grew up in East Texas that went to the same high school. 
They went to the same church. They were in the same youth group. They were a few years apart. The girl's name was Alex. Uh, the guy's name is Terrence. They weren't real close. They graduated high school, and they really did not have uh, much interaction with each other after high school. And so they go through college, they graduate, Alex becomes a teacher, and then she decides to go to Korea for a year to teach. And while she's in Korea, she meets some friends that are teachers, and they decide to go to the beach one day, and she's walking around on the beach, and guess who she runs into? Terrence, the guy from high school, from her youth group that she hasn't talked to in like seven years. She looks at him, he looks at her, and they're like, what are you doing here? And he, had, he was stationed there because he was in the army, she was there to teach, and out of all the places in the world, they happen to be at the same beach in Korea at the same day at the same time. What a weird coincidence that is. And uh, y'all hearing the noise right now? Are we good? Should I switch over? Uh, new microphone? I could use pulpit mic. We'll just switch over there so we can... I know y'all probably think that's the spirit moving, but I think it's just microphone <laughs> making a popping noise. So those, those are unusual interactions in unexpected places. Um, give you another example. A few... A few months ago, Jessica and I had landed in DFW, and we were getting ready to drive home back to White Oak, and we were tired, we were hungry, it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we hadn't had lunch yet, so right outside of DFW, I think we were in Irving somewhere, we decided that we would stop at a Chick-fil-A, grab some food real quick, and continue on our journey. When we pulled into the parking lot, I said, you know what, I need to use the restroom, so why don't we just go inside? You can order the food, I'll use the restroom, and then we'll go. And as soon as I walked in, I made eye contact with a girl that had visited our youth group many years before when I was the youth minister. She looks at me, I look at her, and we're like, what are you doing here? Again, one of those unexpected interactions in unusual places. And I was able to catch up with her. I met her mom. I met her children. I didn't even know that she had children. And so I could go on and on, but it seems like more often than not in my life, I wind up running into people at places I'm not expecting to run into them. Now, it could just be that they're random coincidences. There's probably a good chance that that's the case. But sometimes it tugs on me a little bit, and I think, why did I run into this person at this place? Could it be that there is a reason why? Could there be an opportunity there? As we study Acts chapter 8 today, uh, you will see Philip becomes kind of center stage here in Acts chapter 8, even though Jesus is still the main character. And you'll see that Philip has several interactions in very unusual places and interactions that he probably never expected to happen. They're with outsiders, they're with foreigners, they're with weirdos, they're with all the wrong people. Acts chapter 8 is full of surprises. So I want to read through Acts 8 and I will paraphrase some of it and some of it we'll stop and read. That's why I ask you to open up there. So the first part of Acts chapter 8. Verse 1 through 3, there's a great persecution that breaks out. We ended last week with talking about Stephen, who was stoned to death, and Saul, who later becomes Paul, was there giving approval of Stephen's death, and now a great persecution breaks out against the church. And Paul is like an animal, or Saul, like rounding these Christians up, throwing them in prison, persecuting them, and because of that, those who follow Jesus, who were living in Jerusalem, have to leave. 
And so they're scattered. They go all over the place. And in verse 4, we're told that those who were scattered went from place to place proclaiming the word. So even though the persecution was very unpleasant, I'm sure, it gave an opportunity for them to spread the message, to spread the gospel wherever they went. And now Philip enters back into the scene in verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. We first met Philip in Acts chapter 6. He was a part of those original seven. I called them the first deacons. You could also call them special servants that we meet at the beginning of Acts chapter 6. Philip and Stephen were a part of those seven. And now Philip takes center stage again, and he's in Samaria of all places. I won't go into a great history of this, but you might be aware that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And they hated each other for centuries. They shared a common heritage, right? They had the Torah. They were considered themselves descendants of Abraham. But they were, they were similar. There were just enough differences there that they hated each other, different places, different temples where they would go worship. So Jews did not interact with Samaritans. Samaritans did not interact with Jews. If you were traveling south from Galilee to Jerusalem, instead of taking the quickest route to go through Samaria, usually you'd go around Samaria. So that's how much they hated each other, and Philip finds himself in Samaria. So for the first time in the story of Acts, the gospel is moving from Jewish territory, from mainly in Jerusalem, Judea, and now it's moving into Samaria. And I will remind you that on the very first sermon that I did, I told you that Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is kind of the key verse for the book of Acts. It sets the outline for how Luke tells the story. Jesus tells his apostles before he ascends, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Well, they've done that in Judea. Well, that's the region surrounding Jerusalem. And then he says, you'll be my witnesses in Samaria. Well, now finally they're reaching Samaria. And then Jesus, at the end of Acts 1 verse 8, says, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And we'll get a glimpse of that in Acts chapter 8. So in verse 6 through 8, Philip has this thriving ministry. Uh, he's healing people. Great things are happening. The name of Jesus is being proclaimed. People who are paralyzed can walk again. It's very similar to the ministry that Jesus himself had. And we'll pick up in verse 9. Now a certain man named Simon had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he was someone great. So this guy named Simon, we call him Simon the Magician or Simon the Sorcerer. Uh, he claims to be someone great. And I don't know what kind of magic tricks he was performing, but obviously people, people were into what he was doing. Verse 10 says, All of them, from the least to the greatest, listened to him eagerly, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. So they think very highly of Simon. And they listened eagerly to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, who was proclaiming the good news, who was proclaiming the euangelion, the good news of Jesus about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he stayed constantly with Philip and was amazed when he saw the signs and great miracles that took place. So it's kind of remarkable, the details that Luke gives us. There's a guy named Simon. People think he's some 
great person that comes from the gods and he can practice magic and he can wow them. And now all of a sudden Philip comes in. Both men and women from Samaria are baptized into Christ and so is Simon. That's a big deal. And now Philip's got himself a little buddy. He's got a a little former magician following him around everywhere he goes. Simon the magician, Simon the sorcerer, he's one of these unexpected people. He's an unexpected person in an unusual place. I bet Philip never imagined that he would be living in and spending time in Samaria, let alone have a little buddy named Simon the magician. But that's where we find ourselves. And then you continue in this little section in verse 14 through 25, some strange things happen. The Samaritans who had been baptized into Christ, well, they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. That's different than what Peter says in Acts 2.38. He says, when you're baptized for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, here, they don't. They're baptized into the name of Jesus, but they don't have the Spirit. So Peter and John come from Jerusalem to Samaria And they pray for these people, and they lay their hands on them, and by doing so, then they receive the Holy Spirit. It's a little strange. Uh, Often people look at this and they think, what's going on here? Why did they not receive the Spirit through their baptism like everybody else does? Maybe the simplest way of explaining this is if you look at the centuries of division between Jews and Samaritans, those walls of hostility are being broken down here. So in order to show unity, in order to show that there's no more division, that they are now unified in Christ in this kind of of once-in-a-lifetime significant moment, this is why Peter and John arrived to symbolize the unity that they now have. Now there's a lot of other things that we could say about that, but I will move on. And if you're interested in that or you want to have a conversation about this, this or what we read about in Acts chapter 10 and the baptism of the Gentiles. We could talk more about that at another time. But what happens after they receive the Holy Spirit is Simon, the magician, his occupation seems to be reawakened in him. Because he comes up to Peter and he says, give me that gift. I will give you money if you give me the ability to lay my hands on people and for them to receive the Holy Spirit. I don't know what it was about the Holy Spirit that Simon saw, but he said, I want that. Remember, this is the same guy who once got a lot of attention and a lot of praise from people because of his magic tricks. And now that's been taken away from him. And as a follower of Jesus, he's trying to find his way. And now he sees an opportunity to get some of that relevance back. He wants some of that attention back. He wants people to think he's somebody great. And so he asked for this gift and then Peter rebukes him harshly. And then Simon says, oh, pray for me that none of this happens. And then Peter and John, they get ready to travel south and go back home. But as they they go home in verse 25, they're proclaiming the message of Jesus everywhere they go. So we see people being baptized, men and women, magicians, whatever it may be, in Samaria, giving their faith into Christ. And it all started with Philip's preaching with his ministry. He was there because of the persecution. So he took the opportunity to preach. And what we see in this part in Acts chapter 8 are unexpected conversions 
in unusual places. So if you're looking at your little bulletin insert right now, it may be uh, in a forbidden place because Samaria had been a forbidden place for so long. And it's such an unusual place for them to be in, but they're finding common ground. They're finding unity in Christ. Well, the story continues in verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go go towards the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then we're told in parentheses, this is a wilderness road. Or some of your versions may say it's a desert place or a desert road. So I don't know how the Spirit communicates to Philip here. I don't know if it's an audible voice. I don't know if he just feels the prompting of the Spirit. Or for whatever reason, the Spirit is leading Philip to leave this thriving ministry in Samaria and travel south. Literally to go towards the sun at noon. To go down this road and he's not really told any more details other than to just go. So verse 27, he got up and went. He obeyed. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So Philip is directed by God to go to this road. He's not told any details as to what's going to happen that we know of. Philip doesn't know who he's going to meet or why he's going down this road, but we know that God directed Philip to the right person at the right time. God's not going to force a conversion, but what God does here in this story is he provides an opportunity. It's an opportunity that Philip is going to take advantage of, and who he meets is what we would call the Ethiopian eunuch. He's from Ethiopia, so he's from Africa, probably what is modern-day Sudan, but he's from Africa, so he's come a long ways. He's a eunuch. I won't get into details about that, but he's also a Gentile, so he's probably had been converted to Judaism at some point. He's kind of a higher-up official, and he makes this long journey from where he lived in Africa all the way to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And because he's a Gentile... And because he's a eunuch, there's probably a really good chance that he was not, he was either excluded from the temple or he was not allowed full participation in temple worship. There's a really good chance that was the Ethiopian eunuch's experience while in Jerusalem. Now he's taken the long journey home, but he's still a seeker, right? He somehow has a copy of Isaiah, the scroll, and he's reading it. Verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, Go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up, and he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, so he's reading out loud here. He asked, Do you understand what you're reading? Simple question. There's an invitation. Here's a guy reading the Bible. That's a pretty easy invitation. Here's a chance to reach out to somebody. He's reading out loud. Do you understand what you're reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. The Bible is not always self-explanatory. Sometimes it helps to have a guide. It helps to have someone teach us. But what happens is that God provides an opportunity for Philip, and Philip sees the opportunity. And he just walks up with a simple question. Do you understand what you're reading? No. Come on up here. Let's talk about this. So in verse 32, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. 
And like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. Who do we think that that's about? Everybody just say Jesus. We think it's about Jesus and we believe it's about Jesus, but he didn't know that. In fact, it's because of Jesus enlightening his disciples that they now know how to reinterpret these Old Testament prophecies through the lens of Jesus. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. So he's reading a passage that's about Jesus, but he doesn't know it. In verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? So he's open-minded, right? He's, he's just kind of inquisitive. He's trying to figure out what's this all about. Is it about himself or is he talking about someone else? So Peter's going to take advantage of this opportunity. I mean, Philip is going to take advantage of this opportunity. Verse 35, Philip began to speak. And starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. He took the opportunity that was given to him and he wound up sharing the gospel with him. He wound up teaching him about Jesus. In verse 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water. Uh, we did this Bible study in our staff meeting a few weeks ago, and Tony pointed out it's a desert road. It's interesting that they just happened to find some water on this desert road. They find some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? So for most of you with the Church of Christ background, like I have, uh, this has been a favorite story in the churches of Christ. Why? Because we see an immediate baptism, right? And so he sees water and he's like, what should prevent me? And immediately they go and they're baptized. And, and sure, that's there. That's something to think about. This guy was so eager to be baptized into Christ, he's ready to do it right then and there. Sometimes maybe we wait too long. But I think there's more going on to this story than just that. Keep in mind, this is a guy who had just been to Jerusalem, who had been prevented from full participation in temple worship. And now he's asking, am I going to be prevented from being baptized into Christ? It's the same thing that prevents me being a Gentile, being a eunuch, not being from around here, having the wrong color skin, being the wrong person, having the wrong language. That prevents me from full participation in temple worship. Will the same thing prevent me from being baptized? And the answer is no. Because the invitation to follow Jesus, the invitation to be baptized into Christ is for everyone. When I preached on Acts chapter 2 a couple months ago, I titled it Baptism for All. And if you remember in Acts chapter 2 and verse 39, Peter says the invitation is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off. And I don't even think Peter realized exactly what he was saying. He probably didn't have in mind some Ethiopian eunuch who lived very far away. But now the invitation is for him as well. Verse 38 he commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. What does that look like? I don't really know. Luke doesn't give us any more details. The eunuch saw him no more. I guess it didn't matter that much because he went on his way rejoicing. Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news. So basically, everywhere he goes, he's proclaiming the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea, where I guess he eventually settles in. 
And then later in the book of Acts, chapter 21, Paul comes to visit Philip. And so the reason that Philip lives in Caesarea is because of Saul, because of the persecution that initially made him leave Jerusalem. And then Saul, Paul, and Philip will eventually be reunited. In Acts chapter 8, we get a glimpse of the inclusiveness of this gospel message. Samaritans, they were the enemy group. Both men and women. Magicians. People who believe in magicians. They're all baptized. Eunuchs. Ethiopians. People of different languages and different cultures. They all accept and receive this gospel of Jesus because it is for everyone. These unexpected interactions in unusual places that Philip experiences in Acts chapter 8 leads to unexpected conversions in unusual places. Philip said yes to the Spirit's leading, and even though it might have been uncomfortable for him, and he probably never imagined himself going to the places that he went, what that caused in his own life were intersections, were interactions with people that were foreign to him, but that didn't stop him from seizing the opportunity. You know, Philip was an opportunistic. He seized the opportunity and he told people about Jesus. So what does that mean for us today? You know, usually we study a text, especially in a sermon, and what we're looking for is like a bridge. What's the application? What does this mean to us today? And as I've spent a lot of time in this text, there's really two questions that have come to mind that I want to share with you. Maybe you can do some reflection on in your own life. The first question is this. Are you aware of the opportunities that God may be providing for you? Are you aware of the opportunities that God may be providing for you, whether it's at church today, at home, in your neighborhood, at work, at school, wherever it may be, in a gas station? It doesn't matter. There's probably opportunities for you. Are we aware of it? I'll give you an example of my own life. And I'm, I'm intentionally not sharing all the details to protect identities just in case, you know, somebody was here and was sensitive to that. But I was in a store a few weeks ago, and I won't tell you what store it was, but usually when I'm there, there's a lot of waiting, and there's other people around. And I try to engage in conversation when I can, and usually what happens is when I talk to strangers, inevitably somebody always asks, what do you do for a living? Where do you work? So I try to be vague with my details. I work at the Pine Tree Church of Christ. What do you do there? I'm the preacher. And then conversation over, usually at that point, nine times out of ten. That's why I'm hesitant to say it. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's people from different denominations and I'm Church of Christ preacher and they just assume I don't want to fight with this guy today because historically that's what's happened or if it's because they don't believe and they're talking to a preacher and like, I don't want this guy to force his beliefs on me. For whatever reason, it usually shuts down the conversations, but not on this day. I was talking to someone, just a short little conversation, and she said, what do you do for a living? I work at the Pine Tree Church of Christ. What do you do there? I'm the preaching minister. Silence. And then she said, can I ask you a few questions? And I was like, yes, absolutely, ask away. She wanted to know what it's like to be a preacher. She wanted to know what I do during the week. And and the more we talked, the more I realized This isn't about me and discovering what I do. 
she just saw this as an invitation to express herself. And I told her she could be honest with me. And she said, you know, I grew up in a home where my grandma went to church and I would go to church with her sometimes. But the rest of my family didn't believe in God. And they still don't. And she said, to be honest with you, I'm kind of a mixture. She said, I think I believe in God. I pray sometimes, but I also believe in other things. And so I just listened, and I tried to ask good questions. And I shared with her what I believe and why I believe it, but I tried to be respectful of what she believes and where she comes from. And she said, I don't really know what I am. And I said, I think you're a seeker. She said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well... She was in my generation. I said, you know, we're in that kind of the outer edge of the millennial generation. And she said, how old are you? And I said, 34. She goes, whoa, I, you know, I thought you were 40-something. And I was like, <laughs> so I trimmed my beard. I'm trying to work on that a little bit. So she was shocked that we were in the same age group. And I talked about how there's a lot of people. I have a lot of friends that I grew up with that I would consider seekers. Maybe they're de-churched, unchurched, whatever it may be. And there's still something tugging on their heart that says, I want God to be there. I want there to be a relationship with God, but I'm not sure if I believe. So because of where we were at, the conversation had to come to an end that day. And it didn't end in dramatic fashion like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. She didn't say, here's water, what's preventing me from being baptized. Although I pray that it will lead to that. It did leave with her receiving an open invitation to come visit us at church or continue the conversation whenever she would like. She knows who I am. She knows where I work. But she did say, thank you for listening to me. And she said, thanks for not being forceful. And she said, usually if I talk to religious people, they're so forceful, I just want to stop talking to them. Going into the store that day, I did not expect to have an opportunity to have an interaction with somebody that I think was seeking God. And I don't know how you feel about it. Maybe you're thinking, man, you should have closed the deal. You should have pushed harder. I don't know how you feel. But all I know is maybe there was a seed planted that day that's leading her closer to finally, someday, making that decision to follow Jesus. That was an opportunity that was provided. Are you aware of opportunities that you have like that probably every day, almost everywhere you go? Are you looking for them? Are you praying for opportunities like this? Or are we so caught up in our own little worlds and we get grumpy and we get insulated and we think about our own selves and we're not really paying attention? So maybe we can be more like Philip and take advantage of the opportunities that come our way. And Philip was in tune with the Spirit. And he was aware of these opportunities. So that's one question. The second question is, are you aware of the impact that you can make on somebody's life? There's opportunities that are provided for you probably on a daily basis. And are you aware of the impact that you can have on someone? I shared this story a few years ago, and it's, it's impacted me probably more than it impacted you. And I want to share it again. It started with a guy named John Sutherland. He's a police officer at the London uh, Police Department, and he gave a TED Talk one day. And in this TED Talk, he talked about forensic science and how they go about catching criminals. And he referred to a guy named Dr. Lockard. And he said, Dr. Lockard's theory that we go by is every contact leaves a trace. So he said that usually if somebody breaks in and steals something or performs some criminal 
act or whatever and we're trying to catch them, there's a hair follicle somewhere, maybe they cut themselves and there's a drop of blood or a piece of their clothing rips off or they leave a fingerprint somewhere. If you look hard enough, every contact that they make leaves a trace and we can find them. So John Sutherland's sharing this in his TED Talk and then he reversed it around and he said, that theory works in human relationships. Every contact leaves a trace. Every interaction that you have, whether it be with a good friend or a family member or a complete stranger, every contact that you make leaves a trace in their life. Whether you choose to extend a hand or not extend a hand, whether you choose to bless or to curse, whether you choose to engage or not engage or be kind or to be rude, every contact that you have leaves a trace. So think about Philip in Samaria, for example. Philip was not the first contact there. Jesus was. If you follow the Gospels, Jesus had already traveled through Samaria a few times, which was unusual. And in John chapter 4, most famously, Jesus interacts with this woman that we call the woman at the well. And after she leaves, having, made, having Jesus made contact with her and had this conversation with her, she leaves and she starts telling other people, come meet this guy. And now, a few years later, we don't know how long exactly, Philip enters into Samaria and people are ready to receive this message. And I like to believe it's probably because Jesus already made contact there. Jesus already left a trace. And so they were able to hear from the message that Philip had. Are you aware of the opportunities that God provides for you? Are you seizing those opportunities? Are you praying for those opportunities? And are you aware of the impact that you can make on somebody's life? It may be when you leave today, it may be where you go uh, throughout the week. That could be, those opportunities could be provided for you. And I'll say this about where we're at right now, at this church building. This is not a, an unexpected place or an unusual place. A lot of you come here every Sunday, and some of you come here every Wednesday. So maybe you take it for granted. Maybe you just show up and you say hi to a few people and you sit down. But I would encourage you, even in a usual place, to come in with a spirit of hospitality. To come into a place like where you're at today knowing that you have an opportunity to extend a smile or a hug or have a conversation or make contact with somebody and you have no idea how that could bless their life in the name of Jesus. So come prepared. Come with that spirit of hospitality. And on the flip side of, of this, of God providing opportunities for you to change somebody's life and to sow these gospel seeds, it could be that maybe you're you know, caught up in an addiction or a habit or a sin and you know you need to change. We're all sinners, right? But maybe there's something going on in your life and God's trying to get your attention. So maybe you should be aware if some, through a conversation with someone else, God may be trying to convict you of some sin. So it works both ways. God may be using us to bless others and God may be using others to wake us up. So as I said in the prayer this morning, may we have ears to hear and eyes to see. This morning we're going to conclude this sermon. And I say this every week, 
But we want you to really know that we have shepherds at this church, our elders, who are willing to talk to you at this time, or willing to set up a time to talk further or to pray with you. If you need that, don't be shy. There's nothing embarrassing. You can do it in, in private. Just step aside wherever you want to go. But if you need to respond at this time, if you're feeling convicted, then go talk with one of our shepherds. Or if you want to, you can come up front. I'll be up here and so will one of our elders. And you can come up front and we'll receive you. This is an opportunity for you to do that. We want to invite you to stand and sing.